Stay fly. Stay fly. You know, we have a large white man and a obviously a, a black female. And from what I already understand, he was upset because she wouldn't bow to him. You know, because I remember when I got that good report card, you know, I was showered with love. When I got that bad report card, I was showered with attention that changed my behavior. I don't think it's the agent. I think it's the agenda. You're listening to The Fly Guy Show. They do everything on the fly and in such a fly manner. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. <laughs> hey, this is Ernie Thomas here on the Bold School Podcast. You're listening to Psycho Vaughner's Fly Guy Podcast. Support, like, subscribe, and share. He's saying some good things. Share it. Don't keep it to yourself. All right, so let's get beachy. Now, one of the things that I'm really becoming more and more concerned about is engagement. You know, we just had our POTUS, you know, presidential election, and now people are falling back and relaxing and not paying attention. But this is really the time, particularly in Virginia. In Virginia, we vote every year, mm-hmm. not every four years, every year. So if you're one of the Virginians who has traditionally not voted the year after the presidential election, I implore you, I encourage you, I'll even support you in becoming a lot more informed of the policies that are being discussed that will influence and impact your life. It's time to become more and more involved, engaged, and aware because these policies impact your life here in Virginia. So that's my message for today, and I'm sticking with it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good message. We always want to be engaged in the community, too. Um, I, myself, am quite fond of uh, getting in and and doing some of the grunt work. And, uh, of course, I would like to thank all of you for watching the Beach Brothers Show tonight. I'm Conrad Shesvener. And if you're looking for important takes on local politics, if you want to run for office with good progressive ideas, I'll be around to help. So hit up Conrad Shesvener for Virginia Beach. And look forward to good politics and good progressive ideas going forward using this vehicle and others. And um, I really feel good about tonight's show. Okay, good, good. Well, speaking of tonight's show, who's the guest that we have in the back room, the green room, the waiting room? He's just waiting. He's can't ready to come out now. Who is this person? Tonight's guest is one of Virginia's great activists. Um, he happens to be a Spartan, so behold the green and gold of Norfolk State. He's a oh, wait, 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 wait. Did you just stunt with the Spartan shield on me? I had to. I volunteered <sighs> athletics there. Behold! <laughs> the green and gold. Behold, behold the mold. Uh, I'm a ham Tony. So are we about to have another battle of the bay? Battle of the Bay, what do you say? Hey, look, uh, my son and my daughter are both Spartans, so I'm a Hamptonian and a Spartan dad. And actually, Norfolk State University hired me to run one of their programs about a decade ago. So I love the Spartans. Love to Norfolk Mm -hmm. State. Big love to Norfolk State and all the Spartans. Oh, yeah. Not only only is our guest... Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. um, He happens to also be a Cavalier. Um... He's a UVA alum. He's a Harvard Kennedy School alum. 
He's a Richmond spider and also an alum of the Sorensen Institute. In 2020, allegedly the greatest and most resilient class yet. Um, he ran for a Virginia delegate in 2019 in Virginia's 62nd district, and he only fell behind by 83 votes as a first-time candidate. He's founded Commonwealth Equal, an organization tasked with fighting racism and discrimination. He happens to be a proud social justice warrior, the designation in a time when we want to be fighting for that. He's a diversity practitioner. He's a progressive Democrat who frowns on those making politics a career and establishing themselves above the people. He's Tavoris Marks. And Mr. Marks, thank you for coming on the Beach Brothers Show. Thank you all for having me, Conrad, my brother from another mother. I really appreciate you guys having me on tonight. And yes, I'm excited about a uh, dynamic uh, and probably entertaining dialogue with you all. Oh, let's, uh, let's get cracking. Um, Can I crack first? Well, I actually hear cracking. I'm going to mute. Okay, no, the cracking's not me. Uh, it must be something Spartanish. Okay, so uh, <laughs> the so <laughs> here's the question, brother. Conrad just stated that you did not win the seat that you were running for by 83 votes, not 8,300 votes, not 800, 300, you know, eight, not 830 votes, 83 votes. That must be just mind-numbing. I, I, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, it was heartbreaking is what it was. Um, yeah, I tell people all the time, when, when I talk about my run for the Virginia House of Delegates in 2019, uh, I lost in the Democratic primary for the, uh, the uh, House District 62nd. And again, I lost by 83 votes. And I always say I probably took that loss a lot better had it been by 1,000 or 2,000 votes. Uh, because it's like, okay, cool, I lost, great. Uh, but when you're so close, when you're so close, uh, me personally, I spent a lot of time probably the month after that replaying and thinking in my head, like how many more doors should I have knocked on? Uh, what area should I concentrate more attention to? Uh, concentrated more attention to, or, or how uh, how could I better you know fundraise, get additional flyers to get inside those extra eighty four or eighty five mailboxes? And you you sit back and you critically think and you analyze every single thing, and it almost to a point that you just you know almost go insane. And I just had to step back and say, you know what, Tavares, you did a great job. Uh, myself and my team, we sat back and we actually looked at, you know, the uh, the data, what we went wrong at, what we could have done better at. And in the end, we actually ended up feeling, feeling good about it because we won in the areas we really wanted to win in. Uh, we won the most democratic precincts. You know, we won the most minority populated city. So all those things were very important to me. And, and you always got to find that silver lining. And, and that's what I had to look for after such a close loss. Well, speaking of closeness, I was the opposite of closeness when I ran in the 2018. Uh, I lost to our good friend of the show, Sabrina Wooten, um, like 83,000 to 7,800. So um, I would have rather have had 83 votes uh, separating that. But um, also, I won't talk about how I lost uh, heavily to uh, Sister Laura. My friend Laura Hughes on the school board. Now, how you doing, Laura? All right. Uh, yeah. So, um, 
the great thing is we all learn from our situations. We all learn from our situations. So, Kara, what did you learn from losing by 8,300 votes? Uh, it, it pays to have money. Pretty much. I raised about maybe $4,000. And the fact that I was able to pretty much double up that vote, that uh, how? How did I do that? I don't know. Mainly just a lot of the people that I had working the polls for me. On election day, I need to get a team that could go out and canvas. You need to have people on the ground at all times. And Good I question. <laughs> all right. Let's look a little bit about your uh, private sector history there, Mr. Um, Divorce. Uh, we hear your backstory began in a tobacco warehouse as far back as 15 years old. Um, tell us about that. What else that you have done over the years to uh, generate an income? Yeah, I tell you, you know, my, uh, my upbringing is very important to me as not only as a, as a person, but as a civil servant and civil servant I've become. Um, you know, I was born in the city of Richmond, and I, I grew up in a Brunswick County, Virginia, which is a rural part of the actual Commonwealth. And uh, in that part of the Commonwealth, tobacco has always been, uh, you know, as they always say, tobacco is gold. It's the heritage of that region. Uh, and also Brunswick Stoop, which is the home of Brunswick Stoop, one of the best stoop you ever had. Uh, but uh, as a young man in, in high school and in the summer times, you know, going out and earning money, uh, contributing to the, the economy of my, of my local uh, area, um, working in a tobacco warehouse and working in a tobacco field is some of the most humbling days of my life and some of the most precious days of my life. I learned you know, the value of a dollar. I learned what you know, hard work looked like and felt like. Um, I learned about teamwork because you're out there, you're working with others, you know, picking tobacco, loading tobacco, getting into the warehouse, unloading tobacco, tagging it for, for auction, and seeing all the big wigs from Philip Morris and other tobacco companies coming into the warehouse and bidding on the tobacco and just learning how tobacco really drove our local economy uh, was for me the beginning of understanding how certain areas and certain regions of the Commonwealth operate. You know, uh, tobacco wouldn't be such a big you know deal in probably Northern Virginia or you in Taiwan when you all had. Um, but it's been very, very, very important. Uh, to me, understanding um, the value of hard work, particularly in our rural areas. And that laid the foundation for me as a young man, the foundation for uh, just growing up and wanting to be in public service. Uh, so since, you know, those humble beginnings of working inside tobacco fields and tobacco warehouses and um, in Brunswick County, Virginia, I, you know, I was the first individual in my family, my immediate family to attend college. Um, that was very important to me. I uh, went to the, um, the illustrious Dean Norfolk State University. Again, behold the green and gold. Um, that's where I got my foundation uh, and, and understanding the importance of having positive leaders in our community. Uh, I joined the NACP chapter there. Uh, that's when I got my first introduction to being involved in civil rights, um, being involved in social justice issues, truly understanding the power of the people. And wherever there's power, there has to be people. And people power. People are the power. And understanding um, the difference you can make um, in your community. It all began for me on the campus of North State University. And I tell people all the time, being on the campus of an HBCU, uh, smelling the air, you know, being in the dining halls, being in, in the dorms, you know, being in the pep rallies, the step shows, the probates, 
all that stuff is something that I will forever uh, cherish the rest of my life. The friendships that I, I, I cultivated there. Um, when I saw my, my, my good friend DeAndre Barnes, who's the vice mayor, who's, uh, the vice mayor, I believe, of the uh, city of Portsmouth. Um, little quick story. DeAndre was one of the actually individuals who got me my first quote-unquote, I guess, campaigning gig. Um, he came to me, uh, he was legislative aide for Bobby Scott at the time. He said, hey, you want to go knock on some doors for Bobby Scott and hand out some lit? And, and, and I did. You know, and that was my very first time um, doing one of Bobby Scott's uh, re-election campaigns, actually being politically involved. So taking what I was learning on campus and in the classroom and putting it uh, to work in the community. Uh, and from that point on, I kind of got hooked. Uh, but also while I was at Norfolk State, I did ROTC. So once I graduated, I had a military obligation um, that I, I gladly went into. And that's when I really first started really earning the income was in the United States Army. Um, first as a military police officer, then later as a commission officer in military intelligence. And from that point on, I had a great opportunity to work in federal government. Uh, I worked for the Department of Homeland Security. I worked for the DEA for two and a half years as a criminal analyst uh, before transitioning to uh, state government, working for the Department of Corrections, uh, the Virginia Department of Emergency Management. And I had my first opportunity to work at the executive level, work in the governor's office uh, under the uh, McAuliffe administration and the, and the uh, Secretary of uh, Public Safety and Homeland Security under Secretary Brian Moran as the first ever state resilience program manager, while focused on issues like sea level rise and particularly three projects that were focused in the Tidewater area in the city of Norfolk as well as Chesapeake. Um, dealing with sea level rise and working with the Navy and the Department of Defense and the Army Corps of Engineers on figuring out ways how uh, coastal cities such as Tyler area will, be, will begin the process of living with water, you know, dealing with sea level rise positively and figuring out ways to make sure that the economy doesn't suffer as well as the community doesn't suffer as a result of global warming and sea level rise and things of that nature. Uh, so since then, I've just been kind of stuck in the state government uh, as far as full-time employment. Well, uh, we'll touch on both uh, the local environment and water and especially Terry McAuliffe a little later. What we want to do exactly at this moment is uh, bring you off so I think we can try and fix the clicking sound and then bring you back on and we'll um, ask some more questions. Well, you know what? What's really blown my mind is the amount of work that uh, you know, Mr. Marx has done in government. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of stuff. I'm impressed. I'm really impressed. One and of the things, going. though, and he's still going. One of the things mm-hmm. though, I do want to um, kind of impress upon people is you don't have to have such an illustrious pedigree or background or resume to serve our government, to serve oh. our federal, our state or our city government. You know, I was sharing with Mr. Marks earlier that when I ran for the city council, <laughs> nah, I won't talk about that situation. <laughs> when I ran for the school board, <laughs> um, how many people came up and said, well, you know, how are you qualified to be on the school board? And I had to share with them what the qualifications are. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't mean you don't have to have a master's. You don't have to have a college degree. You don't have to go into college. You don't have to have a bachelor's or associate degree. You know, the deal is you graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have a, a prison record, you know, and uh, some other things that, you know, pretty much keep your nose clean. And so everybody who's listening, everybody who's 
in America primarily, except for those who may have served time in jail, can serve in our government and help to fix and improve and support American citizens. And, and I, I, would point out, I would point out, um, I would like to get on the show one day, uh, Michaela Wilkes, who's going to run for Congress in Maryland. Um, she has been in prison before. It is possible to come back out. Yeah. And then serve your um, serve the community. So, yeah. Right. As a uh, politician, uh, you know, a public servant. So, Brother mm-hmm. Marks, I'm impressed with your background, man. You've done Norfolk State very well. They're, they're mm-hmm. probably just sitting there smiling. Thank so you. salute to the Spartans. <laughs> and UVA and Sorensen and the like. Um, I, I will touch on a little bit from your um, working in business since so young. Uh, what would you say are the things that you have noticed around business and in your community and society that lead you to wanting to fighting specifically for social justice? Oh, that's a great question, Conrad. Uh, I'll probably begin with just something as uh, simple as having a livable wage. You know, understanding that, you know, um, the current minimum wage is not enough for families to live off of. It's not enough for one to survive off of. You know, and I look at how, you know, my humble beginnings of working in tobacco field and tobacco warehouse, how that little bit of money I had at that time uh, was, was just like the minimum wage at the time was like $4 or something, I believe it was. And I was actually getting paid a little bit more than that. And I thought I was rich, man, you know, but I was a young kid with no bills and no children, no family to take care of. Um, and as I became an adult and I was very fortunate enough that I had a college degree and I was working, you know, as, a, as an army soldier and as an army officer and working in the federal government, I can honestly say that, you know, outside of the short period of time to which I was unemployed, I never had to uh, deal with making a minimum wage. But I had a lot of family members who, who are working you know, minimum wage and working two and three jobs to, to survive. Uh, so that's one of the biggest things that have been like the biggest um, concern of mine is, you know, we in this country have not really been um, working, uh, been earning a livable wage. And it's unfair, uh, particularly when you look at um, some of the uh, you know, private sector companies that, you know, make millions and billion dollars a year. You know, you have CEOs and presidents making, you know, two and three billion, three, two and three million dollar bonuses while you have, you know, your, your lower level employees struggling, you know, working one job and leaving your company to go work a second job just to keep the lights on or to keep food on the table. And, and those things like that inspired me to really get out here and fight, you know, for, for just social justice issues, for human rights issues. I mean, you know, make a minimum wage to be able to take care of your family. That, that's a human rights issue. And it, it really shouldn't even be an issue. It should be something that we, as the richest country in, in, in this entire world, should be doing. And we know, we know that it's feasible. We know that we can do it. Uh, but for so very long, those who have been in power, um, those who have come, in my opinion, from privilege, because a lot of time, a lot of our politicians, for so very long, uh, they come from families that didn't have to struggle, that didn't have to worry about getting a minimum, earning a minimum wage. They have trust funds. They went to some of the best schools. They're attorneys, they're doctors, they're lawyers. You know, and unfortunately, you know, for the average citizen, particularly in the Commonwealth, that's just not the case. Let me unmute myself here. Um, so you realize that there are things that should be done societally before you even think about the concept of politics. But then when you want to apply it, 
to politics that leads you to becoming a progressive, you would say, within the Democratic Party. How did you um, come around that? You know, the term progressive, and particularly within the Democratic Party, um, has more and more began to baffle me um, because, you know, I, I, I've always been a Democrat for the most part when I, you know, started to begin to understand what, what politics was. And I'll be honest, you know, I come from a, a conservative family. Some of my elders in my, families, in my family are Republicans. Mm-hmm. And they're basically Republicans for two reasons, because of, you know, uh, and their right to religion. And understanding that, hey, you know, uh, they may not agree with things like same-sex marriage, um, but for me, you know, I was I was totally different as you know one of the, the younger whippersnappers in the family, and and saying, you know, why is it that a group of people should be able to tell another group of people what they can and cannot do, and who they can marry, and who they can love and can't love? Um, what difference is that from some of the Jim Crow laws that we had to endure here in America? You know, what difference is that from any other type of oppression? You know, so I look at that and then I think about the word, the term progressive in the Democratic Party. And I don't think it's progressive to want people to earn $15 an hour. Um, I don't think it's progressive uh, to want uh, families to be earning, you know, $2,000 a month during this pandemic. You know, I, I don't think it's progressive to have you know, paid sick leave. I don't think it's progressive to be having, you know, paid uh, maternal and paternal leave. These things shouldn't be progressive. These things should just be things that should be done because they're right, because they're the right thing to do. So to label it progressive um, or the term liberal, to me, has always been baffling because they've always been the right things to do. And when you look at the other side and you see the term conservative, um, you know, let's be real. And, and this is, you know, um, this is not the, to, to party bash or anything like that. But if you look out, if we look at the last three or four presidents, um, the conservatives have not been so conservative. You know, each time when, you know, Reagan came out, when Bush one came out, when Bush two came out, each time those Democratic presidents were inheriting a huge deficit. Mm-hmm. A huge deficit. You know, when, when Obama came in, he had to, you know, deal with a struggling economy. He had to deal with a deficit. The same thing right now. Joe Biden, he's coming in. He's going to have to fix a lot of things. So, you know, I always sit back and I look and I tell people all the time, I'm a Democrat, but I have no problems, you know, pointing out the issues in my party. And I think that every member of every party should be doing the same thing. And, you know, to me, if you sit back and be complacent uh, and, and complicit in what your party is doing, mm-hmm. then, you know, I, I don't think you're doing your party or the people any justice. So, you know, the term again, the term progressive to me, it shouldn't be a term at all. It should just be the party of the people, the party that wants to do right by people. Mm-hmm. So you're not just holding accountability to Democrats. You're also holding it to Republicans and the independents that they are in office. It's just you got to hold everyone to high account. Um, so that's the standards that you wish the Democratic Party should ideal to. Um, how do you think we could better hold them to account? To Mr. Seiko, uh, jump in, too. Well, that, that was going to be my question. Oh, okay. <laughs> That was absolutely going to be my question. You know, it, it's interesting that in one of your tweets, 
You said, what if I told you the Stop the Steal movement was actually trying to steal an honest and fair election? Would you believe me? I think that's that's kind of intriguing, but it's also saying, hey, Republicans, mm-hmm. if some of your very Republicans who oversaw the voting process are saying that everything was fair, everything was done right, and everything was legal, why... Why? Uh, and, and, you know, of course, I, I don't care for either party. So <laughs> I shouldn't put it that way. I should probably say that I don't have a stock in either one of those companies. <laughs> you know, the Democrats or the Republican. Uh, yeah, you do. I, I don't have stock in either one of those companies, you know. <laughs> but um, how do we hold politicians and the political system accountable and responsible. What things can we do? There's more of us, not you know, non-seated people, you know, people who are not politicians than them. But how do we hold them accountable? Hey, you guys may want to beat me after this. Beat, but vote their asses out. Nice. <laughs> we get out here, we get individuals on the ground, grassroots effort, we get people registered to vote, we help those who lost their right to vote, get it back, get them to the ballot box. And you vote their high parts out. Plain and simple. Because even within the Democratic Party, we have had those who came in on the coattails of young people, progressives, those who want to see things change. They campaign on things like, I'm progressive. I'm going to come in with a progressive agenda. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then they get there and, well, that's not how the game is played. We have to compromise. We have to do this. We have to do that. And that's even more apparent in these past two sessions. And I, you know, I'm very vocal on Facebook and other social media platforms. I've seen it. Help me understand that we have a fully democratic legislator. I'm talking about the governor's office. I'm talking about the lieutenant governor's office. I'm talking about the AG's office. I'm talking about both chambers of government. And you mean to tell me we can't push through the progressive ideas that we've been fighting, fighting for? Pre 2017, when this blue wave came in, please help me understand that. But you still want us to sit back and continue to knock doors for you. You want us to still sit back and continue to believe that that day is coming. That oh, we're going to get this done this year, or we're going to table it this year. You know, we're going to table it, come back to it again next session. What the hell's wrong with this session? You guys control every single aspect of this government. We should still be sitting back waiting on whether we're going to legalize marijuana, how are we going to do it, we're going to do it right. We should still be sitting back having a discussion on whether $15 an hour is going to be feasible here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We should be having a discussion. We should still be, you know, lobbying and having a discussion on um, ensuring that individuals who have had a blemish on their criminal record, you know, can have it expunged automatically for certain crimes. Why, why are we still fighting and having these conversations? Because You know what, uh- Why did the Democrats just prevent the ending of qualified immunity in Virginia? There you go. Prime example, you know, and I have been even when we had a special session when, you know, when it when it got killed there, it got killed in the House. And we had some courageous delegates who said, you know what, we're going to bring this back to the floor and mix it over to the Senate. And we had a handful of these Democratic senators. These Democratic senators, long-time senators, and I believe I made a post about it, that those who shot it down collectively had it close to over 100 years collectively together being in public office. 
shooting down the opportunity to pass to end qualified immunity for police officers. Even right here, right now, Chesterfield County, people don't really understand the ramifications of continuing to allow police officers to have qualified immunity. Prime example, we have a young, we have a gentleman here in Chesterfield County that was hit by a police officer in his cruiser. This gentleman is now confined to a wheelchair. Chesterfield County has not compensated this individual, who also happens to be a homeless individual here in our county, has not compensated him. He did an interview on our local news network. He said no one has even come by his tent to check on him. He has a lawyer. He has retained uh, counsel. They have also recognized that getting compensation, that getting the right thing done will be hard for that gentleman because police officers have qualified immunity. This is not just about um, families who've been devastated by uh, murders at the hands of police officers or losing a loved one at the hand of police officers. Ramifications of having qualified immunity for law enforcement officers has far more reaching ramifications than just the taking of a black life at the hands of police officers. There's other aspects of it as well that these individuals are shielded. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand the other side's argument. Well, I don't want to lose my house or, you know, I'm going to be constantly being sued for doing my job. You know, I I spend a lot of time around doctors, nurses, other professionals who basically have the lives of human beings in their hands every single day. Every single day. There's no doctor in the Commonwealth of Virginia that commits malpractice that cannot be sued. But yet, we have police officers in the same sense who could commit, quote unquote, the same equivalent of malpractice in their job and they're shielded. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense to me, nor do other other people who want to see qualified immunity uh, ended for police officers. Because at the end of the day, if, if an officer is there and doing their job in good faith, they mean nothing but the best for the citizens of their locality, then we understand. Let, let that play out in court. Give that family the opportunity to at least have their day in court. But for so long, and, and as it stands right now, families that are devastated for either having their rights um, violated who are losing a loved one to the hands of a police officer, or like the gentleman here in Chesterfield County that was minding his business. He was taking his propane tank to get it refilled to go back to heat his tent, to heat his, to heat his tent, and was struck and now is confined to a wheelchair because of a police officer police officer who was driving, he has no recourse. He has, he has no redress to gain any type of compensation or right that wrong. That within itself is wrong. Very wrong. I, I hold, wonder, hold up, hold up. Tell us more about, tell us more about this. Why can't he get any help? Are you telling me the city won't help him? Social services won't help him? I'm not surprised that the police officers and the police unions won't, but you're telling me that nobody will help? Well, I tell you, so my knowledge of this issue is solely confined to what was in this um, this news uh, news report. And according to this news report, uh, this gentleman says no one from the county has stopped by to check on him. Uh, after I actually posted it on my Facebook page, I saw some of our community members um, I'll reach out to other community members about getting this gentleman some type of help, i.e., social services helps or some help from our local nonprofits. But far as the county coming in and stepping in and say, "Hey, sir, we know this happened to you. We got it on tape. We saw you were not in the wrong. It was our fault. Let us fix this." 
That has not helped. That, that has not happened. Why that has not happened, I don't know. I'm not privy to the information. All I'm privy to is what I see and what I hear in this news release that this gentleman is hurting. This gentleman was minding his own business when he was struck by a police officer who may not have been doing anything wrong, may have been distracted because we know officers have a lot going on inside those cars. That's understandable. That's understandable. But this gentleman being confined to a wheelchair, this gentleman should not. And he had 177 staples, broken pelvis, some other issues that he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life. And he's he's living out in the elements in a tent. And you mean to tell me that we can't get this gentleman some help? That, you know, one of the most affluent counties in Virginia has not stepped up and said, sir, let us fix this. Sir, how can we help you? Sir, you know what? You know, we can avoid litigation altogether. Let's just go ahead and take care of this. But the fact that on top of that, police officers have qualified immunity. This gentleman might not even get a day in court. So what are your fellow Democrats doing to help this man? Um, By not passing qualified immunity, not a damn thing. Not a damn thing. Because if they really cared about citizens like him, they really cared about black lives and black lives matter. If they learned anything from the civil unrest and the protests that have swept across this country this past summer, they should have learned that you know what? Things have been done wrong a very long time. It's time we have a mechanism to hold law enforcement officers accountable. Every law enforcement officer is not a bad person. I will I would say that at the highest level on the tallest building. From the highest point, every police officer is not a bad person. I have police officers in my family. I have friends who are police officers. You know, I, I have great respect for um, law enforcement officers. I was a law enforcement officer at one point in time in my life. I was a public safety officer at one point in time in my life. So I understand the job. I understand the stresses of the job. But please, please do not turn a blind eye and act like there are not some bad actors out there. And those bad actors have been getting away with murder real life murder and other other incidents for too long and being shielded by qualified immunity. So Democrats, again, having full control of the legislature here in the state of Virginia could have listened to those black voices that some of them even came out in protest with in March with this summer for a photo op or whatever it might be. They could have really put their words into actions. They really could have said, you know what? Damn it, I'm going to do something about it. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to help end qualified immunity for police officers in the Commonwealth of Virginia. This uh, reminds me a bit of a, um, a metaphor here. Um, I was thinking about it as you were talking. Um, we, we noticed we're not even trying to address Republicans on this topic because it sounds like if you want to knock on their door about it, they won't even answer the door. If you knock on a Democrat's door, they'll open the door and then they'll ignore you. Oh, no. I, I wouldn't say they ignore yeah. you. They'll invite you in, they'll cook your dinner, they'll give you dessert, smile on your face, and say, you know what? Let me think about it. Talk to the next day. What are we talking about? They forgot the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> that's what some Democrats are doing to us right now. That's what some that, Democrats are doing. And that's who you guys voted for. And you're yeah. right. That's who a lot of us yeah. voted for. But you know what? I am on a mission. And I am on a mission to galvanize those who think just like I think, who feel like I feel, or really want to listen to some of the things that myself and others have to say. And we're going to collectively, we're going to collectively vote their asses out. We're going to collectively get individuals in those seats who want to stand up for the average citizen, who want to stand up 
But that gentleman who's living in a tent right now, who just got hit by a police officer who's receiving no type of redress, who's going to stand up for that mother who's working two and three jobs, who can't get a living wage, who can't get paid sick leave, who may be pregnant right now and cannot count on having um, uh, 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 maternal, or maternal or paternal leave once they deliver. We actually need people who are going to stand up for them in those political seats. We actually need those individuals, those real true life Democrats who want to be Democrats, who don't want to toe the line, don't want to try to appease their Republican friends every now and then. We yep. want those individuals who ain't afraid to stand up, kick in the damn door, leave the status quo behind, and stand up for Virginians. We voted for you. We got you the seats. We got you the House. We got you the Senate. We got you Lieutenant Governor's Office. We got you the Governor's Office. We got you the Attorney General's Office. Then, damn it, we need a return on our investment. Mm-hmm. And so here's the deal. My parents used to say stuff to me like, you know, we brought you in this world. We can take you out. Yep. You just said we put you in those seats. We can take you out. What I think and what I would love to see more of spreading is teaching the citizenry. I said it wrong. The citizenry <laughs> how to deal with them fools between elections because it's not just the vote our power is so much bigger than just the vote so how do we deal with some of the people who are not serving us while they're in their seats that's what i really want us to kind of and i don't know if there's a perfect answer for that and i'm struggling and i'm working with a group uh the hampton rose black caucus so actually uh conrad works with me on that and we're finding strategies that are going to hold the seated Responsible. One of the things that we're doing, and the NAACP has been doing for a while, is report cards. Yep. You know, because I remember when I got that good report card, you know, I was showered with love. When I got that bad report card, I was showered with attention that changed my behavior. And I think that the report card that the NAACP has been putting out and that, uh, you know, the Hampton Rose Black Caucus and others are going to be putting out soon is the type of strategy that needs to happen. I also see that you uh, you seem to be caping for some people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about uh, why you support Sean Perryman so much. Man, look, let me tell you about my brother Sean Perryman, man. Uh, Sean is uh, currently... Um, I think he actually stepped down, but he was uh, the most recent um, president of the, of the Fairfax County uh, NAACP, which is the largest NAACP branch in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And, you know, I've known Sean for a few years now by way of the NAACP. And I tell you, from day one, when I first spoke to this brother, I was impressed. Sean, when he actually, matter of fact, when he decided to run, he gave me a call and we talked. He said, take Tavares, we're thinking about running for lieutenant governor. And I said, really, man? I said, look, Tell me no more. What can I do to help? And I also talked to him because I was surprised because Sean has never been a political type person. You know, he's never really talked a lot about politics. He's been very focused on social justice issues, civil rights issues, and being a voice in the community. And I was so glad when he decided to take his activism to another level and run for public office, particularly in the lieutenant general, lieutenant uh, governor's position, and having the foresight to want to change the position. And when I say change position, but utilize the platform position to do more, more good, greater good. And that's not to say that uh, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax has not done a great job. I think Lieutenant Governor, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax has done a wonderful job as Lieutenant Governor. Uh, a lot of people don't know that's a part-time position, but you see how active he was, you would think it was an actual full-time position. 
And I know that uh, Sean's going to be just as active. And the reason why I threw my support behind him, because I know Sean is a person. I know Sean is not going to give into political favors. I know Sean would never put politics over, uh, over people. I know Sean will fight for that single mother, for that single father. He will fight for that, 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 that blue collar family. I know that he will fight for what is right. I know it's in his heart. I've had these conversations with him. I've seen it in his eyes. And I know he would never turn his back on his community or those individuals who vote for him, even those individuals who don't vote for him. Sean's that type of person who can bring opposing sides to the table and find a happy medium, but making sure that the majority, as well as the minority, are not ignored. And that's why I've thrown all my support and everything I can do to help and to ensure uh, that Sean Perriman is our next lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth. And when he's elected, he'll be the youngest lieutenant governor ever in history to come with the regime. I think that's also important, too, uh, because if we look at our legislator, legislature, not just at the, uh, the state level, but even the federal level, um, there has to be, we have to get to the point where we're incorporating term limits. You know, and when we see individuals who have been politicians for 20, 30, and some even 40 years, um, and they're, you know, in their 70s and their 80s, at some point in time, we have to step back and assess, do we need to govern the same way we governed 20 years ago today? Are these individuals still really in tune or have a pulse on the community as they should? Do they really know what it's like to really have to make a tough decision of whether I'm going to pay the light bill today or whether I'm going to go out and get a loaf of bread and a pack of bologna to put on the table to feed my kids? My answer is no. Because with power, and that's what it all comes down to, the power of these political positions and them not wanting to relinquish that power, power can also become corrupting. I don't care who you are. Power can come become corrupting. And whether you're a Democrat or whether you're a Republican, some of our elected officials have become corrupt to some point over time. Whether that's corruption uh, leads into criminal corruption or just moral corruption. I would say it's a lot more moral corruption uh, particularly uh, on the Democratic uh, side, uh, for some Democratic uh, legislators who just no longer listen to the community or no longer have a pulse on the community and no longer truly understand uh, the plight of those other Democrats who vote for them year in and year out. You know, so um, to answer your question, I know Sean's going to be that 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 lieutenant governor who's going to stand up for the little the little person, and I'm going to support him. To, uh, you know, until I can't support him anymore. Uh, and I don't plan on not supporting him because I see him as our next lieutenant governor. And I want to do everything in my power to make sure that happens. Uh, speaking of uh, standing up and doing some of the good community work, uh, can you tell us a little bit how you started and what you're doing with uh, Commonwealth Equality? Uh, Commonwealth Equal. So, yes. Uh, equal, yeah. Commonwealth Equal is actually a nonprofit I, I began. Um, actually, this past summer, and I'm gonna tell you, like the really real, the real reason why I began Commonwealth Equal. Uh, most people have known me for, you know, I've been a 14 year member of the NACP, and most member, most people know me from being in the NACP and being one of our local leaders in, in the NACP. Uh, but you know, for me, being a young progressive, um, I don't like a lot of bureaucracy, and you know, don't tell me something can't get done or it has to be voted on a hundred single times when people are suffering. So I took my platform, excuse me, I took my platform and my influence and I put it into uh, what is now Commonwealth Equal and growing that um, to be a new age social justice and civil rights organization. 
um, that people can really come to and, and count on having some type of um, voice well, and a, a group and organization that they can believe in that's going to push those issues that are important to them, who's going who's gonna to be there for them during those times of need when they're going through a crisis like a police death um, or, or losing a loved one at the hands of a police officer or being you know, uh, unjustly sentenced or, or, or any type of other um, societal ill that we've been suffering through, they need to have a place they can come to that you know is not going to give them the, the, the runaround, that's not going to have them call you know 50 other people before they get any type of help or only be told that, hey, you know, we can't help you or have you looked into this or looked into that. And I kind of got really tired of, 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 of that sometimes having that runaround with the NACP and dealing with the bureaucracy that sometimes comes with our local and state, our local branches, as well as our state um, state conference. Uh, so that was the real reason why I decided to stand up come with Equal. And I had a lot of people who kind of, you know, pushed me and say, hey, Tavares, you really need to start your own um, nonprofit and focus on the social justice issues and civil rights issues and address them in a new in a new era, a new way. Um, you know, the NACP has been around 112 years. Things have changed over those 112 years. Are we continuing to foster our we but is the organization continuing to adapt to the new ways of addressing social issues, civil rights issues? You know, and I want to be able to have an organization to where we can get those great minds together and really figure out ways to really truly be effective in addressing these issues in a more modern um, type way. I definitely want to see if we'll be able to um, help you grow that um, in the near future and beyond. Um, I also want to touch back a little bit on the previous uh, topic of uh, Mr. Sean Perryman. I've donated money to him this go around. He's been a guest on the Beach Brothers show twice. I've also donated money to uh, former delegate Jennifer Carroll Ford and current Senator Jennifer McClellan. These are progressive candidates that I like um, that I want to see achieve high office in Virginia. But then again, we have some individuals like uh, Terry McAuliffe. He's been governor before. He's assuredly quite well off. Um, he's poised to, when you look at it, easily run away with this primary the way it looks right now. And here we are, the party that is vaulting to the front, saying that we support diversity. We are um, led by black women. And we have two greatly qualified black women running for governor as Democrats, Princess Planning running on her own ticket. And then there's Terry again. How should we deal with all that? I, I, I'm going to give you my, my opinion on this on this you know, term call issue. And, and full disclaimer, as I said earlier, that when my first opportunity working inside the executive level, uh, the executive office um, here in the Commonwealth was under the McCullough administration. Uh, term McCullough, don't do not get it wrong. Term McCullough did a lot of great things for the Commonwealth. Term McCullough did a lot of great things uh, for uh, minorities, particularly the black community. He did a lot of great things for incarcerated individuals, those who, uh, i.e., were getting um, the right to vote. Did a lot of great things, and with those great things, I think he cemented his legacy during his uh, first go run as governor. And if you recall, he didn't win by a landslide. He didn't just you know walk all over Gillespie. Black women, in particular, gave Terry McAuliffe the governor's office. The black vote here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, in particular delivered Terry McCullough the governor's office. Now, if you recall, I spoke earlier about return on investment. 
mm-hmm. and how the black vote and how we continuously vote Democratic to get Democrats elected. I look at it as like this. Terry Culver had an opportunity to return the favor, particularly to black women. Now, we have three black females and one black male all running for governor. This was Terry's opportunity, again, to cement his legacy by repaying the favor that black women gave him and helping him get the governor's office the first time by getting behind two water-qualified black women who are running for governor now, Senator Jennifer McCullen, former delegate Jennifer Carroll Ford. By not doing so, my personal opinion, it was a slap in the face to black women, it was a slap in the face to the black voters here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, a lot of people may disagree with me. Matter of fact, we have members of the Black Caucus who disagree with me because they have come out in support of former Governor Terry McCullough, which also baffled me. I still struggle to understand how any member of our legislative Black Caucus can see that we have the opportunity to make history here in the Commonwealth of Virginia by electing not only our first female governor, but the first black female governor mm-hmm. in the entire country. We have the opportunity to make history. And I still struggle to really understand how any member of our legislative black caucus could not rally behind one or both of those women or rally behind all three of the black candidates. Yet you rally behind a millionaire white male who's already been governor, who in my opinion feels like, well, I'm entitled to be governor. This is my seat. So let me come back and, and sit back in. You know, I, I wonder about that mentality as well, but I also wonder it's not necessarily the person. It's not the agent. It's the agenda. So I don't think we should support somebody just to have a strong sister in charge and running things. I don't think we should support her just because she's qualified, she's going to do a great job, and we have the opportunity to do something historic. I don't think it's the agent. I think it's the agenda. So I would say we really take a hard look at the agenda and say, who's really going to support our agenda? And if Terry McCullough which I don't believe has supported our agenda doesn't make the snuff, then we don't give him the support. And if Jennifer, uh, well, I know it's two Jennifers, but either one, give it, take it, take a Jennifer, any Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> if they make the snuff because they support the agenda, we rally behind them. I don't think it's the agent. I think it's the agenda. Um, but I might be in the minority here. Well, I tell you that the, the person in this for disclaimer, I love all of our black candidates. I think all of our black, either one um, who's elected, I'm going to be happy with. Either one of the Jennifers who, uh, you know, elected, I'm going to be happy with. But of course, everyone knows that I'm throwing my full support behind Jennifer Carroll Ford. Mm-hmm. Because just like you talked about the agenda, I know that she has the agenda that I fully support. She has the agenda that an individual over in Wickham Court 
can get behind and support. She has the agenda that individuals over in Park Place in Norfolk can get behind and support. She has the agenda of uh, the worker right now in Amazon can get behind and support. She has the, the agenda that the bagger at, at Kroger can get behind and support. She has the agenda that the brother and sister that's currently incarcerated can get behind and support. She has the agenda that the small business owner who's struggling right now can get behind and support. She has an agenda that the black contractor out there in Virginia Beach who ain't getting these big dollar contracts or being slid to the side can get behind and support. I'm in supporting Jennifer Carroll Ford because she has the agenda that the average family that the blue collar family, that the working class family, that the struggling family can get behind and support. And that's why I'm supporting General Carol Ford for government. Woo! I hope she pays you $10 per word agenda. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm joking. I'm joking. That was a Let's great uh, commercial. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that, whoo, that was beautiful. But um, if, if that's the truth, then we all need to support Jennifer. Because if she's on agenda, if she's on code, we need to get on code for her. If she's on code for us, we need to get on code for her. And I can say, I don't know if, uh, you know, Mr. McCullough was always on code for us because some of the things we've been asking for could have been done. Could have been done. But now everything is this bold idea. He's going to do this bold. He's going to do that bold. That, this bold. This, that, and the third bold. Brother, come on. Like, you had to, you had to be bold as you wanted to be. Even if, even working with a Republican, uh, I think he worked with a Republican Senate at the time, um, and maybe a bit of a majority inside the uh, Republican majority in the House as well. But you had the opportunity to be bold as you wanted to be. So now you want to give us this this calling card, reelect me. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to do A, B, and C. And to me, that's just it, it, it doesn't pass the snuff test. You and know? you got to remember, Jennifer can also be bold. And Jennifer, Jennifer, Jennifer Carroll Ford can be bold. I think she has been bold ever since mm-hmm. she's been elected delegate. I mean, we're talking about a, a woman who ran while pregnant, who gave birth to her her twin, her beautiful twin boys. You know, after a hard, tough campaign, who who had a tough primary. We're talking about a woman who who graduated from VMI, mm-hmm. a member of the third, the only third female class coming out of VMI. And now we're looking at all the revelations that are coming out of VMI of the uh, institutional and and systemic racism that has been alleged inside the institution. Not only was she a woman coming through VMI, but she was a black woman coming through VMI. We're talking about a woman who comes from the the city of Petersburg, who beat the odds, who went to law school, who became an attorney, and not just, you know, some high-dollar attorney, you know, working for this large law firm. No, you know what she did? She went and became a, a public defender to defend those who don't have high dollar money. And if that wasn't enough, she became a foster parent to take care of kids who come from broken homes or who, who are searching for a stable um, home to be in. Her entire life has spoke who she is. Her entire career has spoke who she is. She stepped down from a seat as a delegate that she probably could have held for, for however long to yeah. say, you know what, I'm all in to become governor. I'm not going to stay here and keep this seat cozy and if I don't become governor, I still got something to fall back on to maintain my political power. No, she put all her damn chips on the table and you say, you know what? It's go time because I'm dedicated to this. I'm dedicated to the people of Virginia and I'm dedicated to becoming your next governor. 
That's the type of person she is. Don't listen to lip service. Look at actions. Look at a person's resume. Look at a person's life story. That's what's important to me. And I totally relate to who she is, who she has become, and what she stands for. And that's why I'm supporting her. So I guess she's has the right agenda. She has the right <laughs> agenda, brother. The right agenda. And you mentioned that she's a former public defender. Um, so you think that she might be probably one of the best bets that we could have attacking and reforming drug laws, um, policing in Greater Virginia? And we could touch on how those are the things you think need help the quickest. And she could be there right on the money. I tell you what, Karen, if when Jennifer Carroll Ford is elected, and if she has Sean Perriman as her lieutenant governor, and we still have a Democratic uh, Attorney General's office, and the Democrats still maintain control of the House and the Senate, man, I'm going to tell you, Virginia is truly going to move forward. Virginia is truly going to correct the wrongs, the ills of this country. Virginia is going to be the catalyst and the blueprint of what America should look like. And I'm telling you, that will happen with General Carol Ford in her four years. And particularly if she gets everything that Ralph Northam has had, a Democratic legislator, and man, we have to get her there. And we have to also focus on voting those Democrats out, those Democrats by name, getting them out and putting Democrats in those seats who really want to do what's right by Virginians who really want to do what's right by the blue collar worker who really, really want to do what's right by the single mom, the single dad, the struggling family who really wants to do what's right by our incarcerated citizens Jennifer Carroll Ford is that person she is that person her life tells the story of the type of governor she will be her career tells the story of the type of governor she will be she would not be a corporate pawn for anyone. She would not give in to political favors. She would not never, ever put politics over people. And you know what? If everyone else takes the time to just to get to know who Jennifer is, I'm telling you, it's a slam dunk. It's a slam dunk. Because you also got to look at it as well. I'm, I'm going to bring this up really fast. You know, she was the face of the ERA. You know, she really pushed hard to get the ERA over the top. And I find it disappointing. all around the state. Yeah. I find it very disappointing that some of the bigger names um, in the ERA and part of the ERA movement haven't come out from the jump behind her. Have not been with her for the day from the day she announced her campaign. All those individuals should have been behind her. Because you're surprised about that? No, not really. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I I can't be surprised about it. I was trying to make it good for good TV, but I got to be honest, I'm not surprised. Well, here's the deal, man. Whenever we, people of African descent, step out and fight for what's right and we help out another group, they don't look out for us. Well, you you know what, Um, Seiko? I'll also say that, you know, that's not just from other groups. I see even within our groups. I talked about the Legislative Black Caucus earlier and how some of those members have stepped out. You know, in support of uh, Terry McCullough right out the gate, opposed to really sitting back and saying, you know what, we got three, four of our own who are running for governor. And they did that out of the gate. 
They didn't even yeah. they didn't even vet him then say, let me see who's gonna be the best person. They didn't say we're gonna find out who has the best agenda. They didn't find out who was gonna be the best on code. They, they just <laughs> And, and, and the crazy part about it, I, I think back to when I ran in 2019, how I was lobbying um, and, and reaching out to, to elected Democrats and saying, hey, can I get your support? Can I get an endorsement? Oh, we don't endorse in primaries. <laughs> we, 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 uh, we don't endorse in primaries. And, and I, I, we only support the person with the most money who wins. Yeah. <laughs> Those are your Democrats. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I'm sounds like I'm Democrat bashing, and I'm not because I, I do the same thing for both sides. That's why it's good that she's also been um, endorsed by the Virginia Justice Democrats because their main thing is that they want to remove the corrupting influence of money in politics. She's been hey, look. the unions. You know, the, the people who matter. The people who matter, look at her endorsement. Look, look at who our donors are. She's not a millionaire. She don't have other, you know, millionaires throwing million dollars at, at her campaign. Look at who our donors are. Look who's endorsing her. Look who's giving to her. That's important too. We really got to start educating ourselves on these candidates and doing research because you know, money plays a big, big part in politics. Let's just, that's a known fact. It's it plays what it is. a huge part in politics. But when we really sit down and look at the actual candidate we research the candidate we really can tell who's for us and we don't have to be surprised in the end like oh wow I voted for that guy he didn't do A he didn't do B he didn't do C well did his life story tell you he would do that did his yeah, we just he would do that hey we just put two uh, <laughs> prosecutors not prosecutors we just put <laughs> the two people uh, our president and vice president both had the same job <laughs> I can't think of it it's, what, what was their job as a lawyer they were a uh, attorney general. Uh, Kamala Harris. Was attorney Kamala general. was attorney general of California. Yeah, but before that, they were DA. both. They were DAs. Biden uh, wasn't, but um, he was the public defender, I think, in the seventies before he became a senator. But yeah, you know, we could just acknowledge that they both had their influence over the police state as we now know it. Okay, so we can easily say they both put people in jail and didn't do anything when those people were put in jail wrongly. Right. Okay. I would agree to that. Oh, by the way. uh, Would you agree, Mr. Marks? What's that? Uh, That both our president and our current vice president both put people in jail that didn't belong in jail and didn't do things to get them out of jail once they realized that they shouldn't belong in jail. I think that's a valid argument, but I, I, I would rebut against uh, particular Kamala Harris. I think that, you know, the research I've done and the stories I've read as far as her career, uh, that she was somewhat progressive as an attorney general. And at the end of the day, uh, you can only enforce the laws that are on the books. And when you have mandatory minimums and things like that, it's only but so much deviation you can do um, from what the laws are on the books. So I, I will give a little, give a little on that, and I'll take a little. But I think for the most part, you're right on that. Okay. I would, I would also point out that that is definitely a sound argument because many make it. But then again, you also do have um, CAs like Stephanie Morales and Portsmouth, who steps away sometimes. Some discretion could be used for protective reasons. 
Yes. Hey, salute to Stephanie Morales, man. Salute to that queen. I yeah, good salute. stuff. We had our own progressive CA here for a short period of time in Chesterfield County by the name of Scott Miles. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, Scott Miles came into a screaming conservative county like Chesterfield County, wanted to do the right thing. And, you know, I was so disappointed that, you know, I can do more and we can do more to get him reelected after having uh, finished out the previous term of his uh, predecessor. Um, but, you know, I, I pray to God that that man becomes a judge one day because I know that, you know, uh, he would do a great job, particularly um, interpreting the law and making sure that uh, his uh, his determinations are fair and equal across the board. Uh, so, yeah, I would love to see Stephen Rallis as a judge one day. I would love to see uh, Scott Miles as a judge one day. Um, Stephen is also a fellow a fellow spark, behold the green and gold, and she, she's that's only you. doing what we were ready to do, and that's change the world. North State Groom's leaders, you hear that? North State Groom's leaders. <laughs> hey, tell them about five years in the gloss. I agree. Norfolk State grows leaders. Hampton University grows judges. So we need leaders and we need judges. We need doctors. Hampton University grows uh, doctors. This is where we... Hampton University University cures cancer with proton therapy. We need it all. We need it all. (laughs) I keep saying that, man. Hey, man, I've asked a lot of questions that ended up taking up a lot of time. Well, One question that I want to ask you before I, in other words, yeah, I'm going to do it again. Um, <laughs> this was, this took a lot of bravery. It took a lot of fortitude to post this picture and this situation on your timeline. Okay. Um, What does this, what needs to be done in these types of situations? You know, man, um, first and foremost, as I said on my timeline, I have zero tolerance for those who hurt women and children, um, which is you know, one of the reasons why, I'll be honest with you, I, I struggle with the elimination of the death penalty. Uh, I, I, I agree for eliminating it, but you know, those who really hurt women and children and the elderly, um, I think that it's not a it's not a, a, a harsh enough punishment for those individuals, uh, but particularly for that situation, I looked at it from a different uh, a few different lenses. I looked at it as a lens of first and foremost, um, obviously uh, the racial aspect. You know, we have a large white man and a obviously a, a black female, and from what I already understand, he was upset because she wouldn't bow to him. That was problem number one for me that really upset me and the mentality that this gentleman has. And, and also it speaks to just because someone's inside our interracial relationship or they say, hey, I got I have black children or my wife or my girlfriend or my husband or my boyfriend is, is black or, or, or white. That doesn't mean a damn thing. It means nothing to me uh, because this is a prime example of an interracial uh, 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 interracial relationship to where there had some type of racial understone because I, he wouldn't have told a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Barbie to bow to me. I, I highly doubt that. Um, but to add on, there has not been enough noise surrounding this situation. Not like look, Ray was. Look at this woman. And, and sometimes, you know, I struggle with I wanted to post a picture of her bruised and battered, but 
just like Mamie Till took the fortitude to have an open casting for her son Emmett Till because the world needs to see the ugliness of racism. The world needs to see the ugliness of domestic violence as well. And what this woman went through is wrong. But the fact that one, I feel like the NFL has not stepped up and been vocal about it enough. Two, I'm starting to hear chatters of, oh, well, he went through a manic episode or, or, or he's bipolar, he's suffering. And for so long, throughout history, whenever, in my opinion, I'm just gonna say, whenever a white man is the subject of something as heinous as this, they always look for the excuses. They always look for, let's find a way to, to soften his image or, or justify what happened. We want that soft, or we want that um, um, understanding. And again, I totally do not condone domestic violence, violence against women and children. But I remember when an incident, you guys recall, remember Ray Rice? Yep. And that horrific incident on the elevator? Mm-hmm. When he knocked his fiance unconscious? It, it hurt me, man. I, I really wanted to go wherever he was and lay hands on that brother. Just like I wanted to lay hands on this gentleman. No, my, my, my emotions and my passion was no different. But I saw the different reaction in the media and how Ray Rice was treated and how this gentleman is being treated. It's not the same. It's not the same. And if we're going to address domestic violence in the NFL or across the board, then we need to address it the same way with the same energy, no matter if the person is black, white, brown, green, or Chinese, or any other color. You may notice that they kept talking about Ray Rice, and they kept talking about Ray Rice. They have already stopped talking about Mr. Reeler. Man, they talked about Ray Rice even the years afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. and, and even after him and his, uh, I think she's his wife now, reconciled, you know, I mean, this man never played another down in the NFL. And, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. Um, I want to see that same energy applied to this case as well, if not more. But the fact that the NFL has been so quiet about it, the fact that the media itself has been so quiet about it, I think it's, again, an injustice to not only the black community, but an injustice to women. It also it screams to me white privilege. It screams white privilege to me and how the inequities and media plays out right before our eyes. Well, I also want to say, good brother, in that post, you said, if you were a victim of domestic violence, you have a friend in me. And I think those who are suffering through those situations need to know that there are friends out there. You provided your email address, your telephone number. You said reach out with a safe word. Brother, I want to commend you on that. More of us Americans, more of us Male Americans, most of us need to do more of what you're doing. So thank you. I just wanted to say thank you. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, brother. Um, uh, before we uh, get ready to close out tonight, there's a couple more questions I wanted to ask. And one that was especially important to you, we briefly touched on judges and who might make good judges. But you may note the state of Virginia has um, a way of selecting judges that might be improved upon and I want you to take us down that road. Yeah, and, and I'll try to get through this quickly. I actually made a post about this yesterday. The South Carolina and Virginia are only two states that uh, do legislative appointments for their judges. I think that needs to be changed. And uh, the reason why I think it needs to be changed is because of what I've seen play out right here in my own backyard in Chesterfield County and how politics and how elected officials have too much of a say-so and are in the way we select our judges. 
Now, my initial suggestion uh, on that post was to elect our judges as constitutional officers, as you do your treasurer, you do your sheriff, and so forth and so on, and elect them to four-year terms. You know, I had a lot of dialogue on that post, and I had some people text me, and I actually talked. And I'm even willing to even entertain for them to have eight-year terms, you know, but still be elected by the people. Uh, That's circuit court judges, general district court judges, JDR court judges on down. Um, anyone else who wants to go to appellate court or Supreme Court, of course, I still agree with those individuals being uh, appointed. And But some of the interesting dialogue, individuals saying, well, we don't know who we're getting if we, we don't know enough about the people if they are elected. And I'm saying to myself, name who the judges are of consideration right now to be appointed to uh, your local general district court. Name them. A lot of us don't even know them. A lot of us don't even know the people that are being appointed to these judicial uh, to these judicial seats in any locality. All this stuff is happening behind closed doors. So the fact that we can have some type of transparency and how these individuals run for those um, for those uh, positions with minimum qualifications in place, because I think even with minimum qualifications, that has been bypassed even in, in the current appointments. I, I remember when uh, we elected the. Uh, the sister, I can't think of her name now, from the Henrico County General District Court to the Court of Appeals. That had never happened. She totally skipped circuit court and went to the Court of Appeals. But that wasn't the most blaring thing. The most blaring thing I found out is that there were lawyers who never were judges before who had been appointed to the Court of Appeals. And I'm saying to myself, how are we electing judges to the Court of Appeals who never sat on a bench in circuit court or general district court. So I think the way we do things here in Virginia is out of whack. Now, whether we, we go and we elect those judges um, uh, to eight-year terms as uh, as um, constitutional officers and not to see three elected terms, which will put them at three times uh, three times eight, that's pretty much a, a career, mm-hmm. uh, or we establish some type of commission like we did with the redistricting commission. Uh, that's one of the things I fought so hard to... Uh, pass Amendment One and have a redistricting commission to get the way our judicial, uh, the way our uh, congressional and legislative lines are drawn out of the hands of politics. The same thing needs to happen here with judges. And you know, I, I want to work here in an upcoming year, in the next year, and find whoever those legislators are who are interested in seeing this come full circle and interested in having some type of dialogue where the, the the power to appoint judges is taken away from legislators and putting in the hands of the people. I want to have that conversation. I want to find a way to do it, whether it's by way of establishing a commission or some type of way of having them elected as constitutional officers, talking about those terms. But the current way we're doing it in Salmon, South Carolina, I don't, in my opinion, I don't think it's the best way uh, that we should be uh, electing our, or appointing our judges. I want to touch on briefly a little bit about um, athletics, Norfolk State just decided that they're not going to have spring football and they postponed it from the fall. So basically a year without football. You also have a UVA history and they look like they're bound to be another NCAA tournament team. So uh, give us some of your thoughts on some of your alma maters and their athletics. Yeah, sure. Shift gears a little bit here. That's, that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I love, of course, my, my Spartans and behold the green goals always. I think in person it was a good, it was a good call not to, uh, not to have football this year. Um, but it's also an unfortunate call. And it also goes back to, again, showing the disparities uh, among PWIs and HBCUs, predominantly white institutions and historical black colleges and universities. 
you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, Norfolk State does not have the uh, the revenue that a Power Five school or a big time school would generate. But a lot of the uh, revenue that comes from sports at Norfolk State, particularly i.e. basketball and football, is it, a big chunk of money that supports the school, and, and the school kind of probably depends on that. Um, so I know it was not an easy decision, but I think it was the best decision, um, particularly not only for our players and, our, and um, fans as well as students and alumni, but I think it was fiscally the smart thing to do as well because what would have been the return on that investment of paying for our, mm-hmm. our players to go to these different other playing sites and, you know, putting out the money, everything that comes with, you know, putting together a, a football season without recouping the revenue of having packed stands or, or having the revenue that's generated that comes with, you know, having uh, football games. You know, mm-hmm. your Alabamas, your Auburns, you know, uh, even your UVAs, they, they could – they, they can absorb their costs. And speaking of UVA, you know, I'm, you know, I'm still defending NCAA champions. Sure. Uh, <laughs> that's always good to say. I think Gonzaga's ranked number one now. But, uh, you know, and UVA has a rich, pretty good, too. Yeah. Uh, UVA has a rich history. I remember a few years back when we won the uh, NCAA baseball title championship. Yep. My, my family and I went there uh, to the, uh, the basketball arena and, and participated in the celebration. Um, UVA is a special place, you know. Uh, I love the campus. I love the town of Charlottesville. I love, um, I love being a graduate of UVA. I love being a graduate of Norfolk State. Yeah, I love being a graduate of all my alma maters. But you know, people always hear me talk the most about Norfolk State because Norfolk State really laid the groundwork and the foundation. Mm-hmm. Behold, laid the groundwork and foundation for the man I became, uh, for the uh, leader I became inside my community, and for the civil servant that I'm still, you know, working to become and be. Let's uh, wrap up by giving us the last closing comments uh, for yourself and what you want to do and what you would like viewers tonight to help you out with. How should we also join you and help out? Yeah, please uh, check out my websites. I actually have a, um, a swag shop, a merch shop online. You could um, stop by and visit us at www.ce, as in common with equal, ceswagshop.org. Also, check out our website. We're actually actually revamping the website under construction right now, but that website is com- www.commonwealthequal.org. Uh, you can also reach out and email me at Tavares at commonwealthequal.org. Um, follow me on social media, Tavares Marks. Uh, I'm on um, Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I don't do too well on Twitter. I need to get on Twitter a lot more. Uh, I also need to build my Instagram uh, following, but I'm on all social platforms. I have a unique name type me in i'm the only one who comes up and, and just you know to support the efforts i'm out here i'm involved in i encourage you to support the candidates that i support jennifer carol foy as well as sean Perriman. if you know me if you support me then extend that support to both of them uh, please donate to their campaigns and let's just you know let's stay knee deep in this social justice fight together and if my brother conrad here decides to run again i'll tell you he's my brother from another mother now i was able to donate to his campaign run Vice versa. Make some small donations because I I believe in him. I believe his vision and his fortitude and what he wants to do for uh, Virginia Beach. So, you know, outside of that, thank you all for tuning in tonight. Um, Continue to follow me on social media. Um, I do plan to run for office again one day. What that Mm -hmm. office would be, stay tuned. And I'll be there to help. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you, brother. Hey. Thank you for coming on tonight, Mr. Tavares. And, uh, you're a friend of the show now, so hey, be ready to come on again in the future. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Beach Brothers. 
You're welcome. Have a great evening. show was brought to you by Positive Vibes Incorporated, our consulting services. We do credit fixes, we do tax resolution, we lend private money and debt consolidation. So if you need some of these services, we're waiting here for you. Credit fixes, tax resolutions, private money and debt consolidation. Make sure you call Positive Vibes Incorporated. Take care. They floss, they floss, they floss, they floss, they floss, they floss, they floss. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. They floss, they floss, they floss, they floss, they floss.